the First Crusade, one of the most famous campaigns in all of history. That vast and unprecedented European expedition, undertaken by tens of thousands of soldiers, in order to lay claim to the Holy Land. Yet, like all wars, this one didn't happen in a vacuum. As far as the Islamic world was concerned, and indeed most educated Europeans at the time, this was far from the beginning of hostilities. In the eyes of regular Muslims from the Atlantic to the Black Sea, and in the words of contemporary Arabic scholars, several earlier expeditions and incursions into their lands had been just as important as this one. For many Arabic scholars, the beginning of the Crusading period had been in the 1060s and 1070s, with the Norman invasion and gradual conquest of the island of Sicily. Indeed, the leader of that campaign, the great Count Roger Hauteville, was the uncle of Bohemund of Taranto, one of the integral commanders in the First Crusade. The knowledge and expertise gained in the Sicily campaign was especially important to the Norman success in the East. Many of Bohemund's men already being fluent in Arabic by the time the expedition began. Yet other wars, sometimes described as Crusades, took place too, long before the First Crusade. In 1064, during the Reconquista in Spain, a vast multi-ethnic army, officially sanctioned by Pope Alexander II, rode south to war. To seize the strategically important city of Barbastro from its Muslim rulers. Nineteenth-century Spanish scholar Ramon Pidal famously called this war a crusade before the Crusades. Finally, in 1087, we have another example of a papally sanctioned campaign, conducted by a multinational Christian army against a Muslim ruler. This time, it was the Italian maritime powers of Genoa and Pisa, facing off against the North African town of Mardia. Then, under the control of the Zirid ruler, Tamim ibn Muiz, a pirate lord who'd also been active in fighting the Normans in Sicily. Because a form of indulgence and remission of sins was granted to those who took part by the Pope Victor III, Crusades scholar Karl Erdmann calls this a direct precursor and almost prototype campaign to the First Crusade with actual military aid even being provided by Rome to the campaign's commander, Hugh of Pisa. Yet one event much earlier than these, undertaken close to a century before the First Crusade, was especially important too. For Crusade scholar Jonathan Riley Smith, we should look here if we want to find the very first example of a crusade. For this was a papally sanctioned expedition launched by Genoa, Pisa and the papacy to reclaim the island of Sardinia 
from an attacking fleet of Islamic warriors from war-torn Al-Andalus that had seized it just months before. This is the story of the Sardinia campaigns of 1015 and 1016. Wars with a good claim to being called the real First Crusade. This video is sponsored by a personal favourite of mine, which I use near enough every single day and have done for several years. It's Audible, the number one audiobook streaming service in the world. I listened to audiobooks before I got Audible, but since getting this app, I haven't looked back. It's so satisfying having everything in one place. And at such a cheap price per month, this is an absolute bargain. You can listen on any device at any time and seamlessly pick up right where you left off, even if you leave it for months and listen to 10 other books in the meantime. If you don't like a title, you can even return it in exchange for another. And of course, your credits build up and roll over to the next month. And even if you cancel, you keep your titles forever. Some amazing books that I've been enjoying recently are The Celts by Barry Cunliffe, Stonehenge by Bernard Cornwell, and The Norman Conquest by Mark Morris. But there are so many others out there. If you sign up for a free 30-day trial using my link in the description below, or by texting History Time to 500-500, you'll not only get a completely free audiobook, but two Audible Originals too. What are you waiting for? Go and get yourself some free knowledge. Now, back to the war-torn early Middle Ages. In the summer of 1015, dark sails were sighted off the Sardinian shore. This large island in the northern Mediterranean had seen its fair share of corsairs in the past, heading up from the Emirates on the North African coastline to plunder and seize slaves for the burgeoning markets of Tunisia, and most recently from the flourishing pirate bases off war-torn Sicily riven between Islamic invaders and Byzantine imperial holdouts. Though for the most part, these had been fairly small-scale operations, leaving little lasting impact on the island, besides occasionally occupying a few towns and fortresses. This time, however, it was different. Sardinia is an ancient place, littered with the edifices of ages gone by. Great towers of the neuralgic civilization, Phoenician ruins, Carthaginian towns, and Roman settlements. By the early 11th century, however, the island was ruled over by a multitude of regional lords called judges by the local, mostly Christian population. These powerful figures, perhaps a throwback to the period of Byzantine Eastern Roman influence on the island, held the power of life and death over their people. At least four of them held sway over the island. In the north, there was Galora and Logodoro. In the centre, Arborea, And in the south, Cagliari. For the most part, these powerful lords kept to themselves, ignoring the goings-on in the wider world, content to govern their own affairs, 
besides the occasional border skirmishes, fought for land and animals against their neighbours. As the citizens of Cagliari gazed out into the Mediterranean that summer, however, it immediately became clear that despite his claims to the contrary, their judge would be able to do little against this force. Out on the horizon, just below the skyline, was a fully equipped army. Fierce, sabre-wielding veterans packed into 120 highly mobile warships. This wasn't just a piratical raiding fleet, it was an invasion force, come to claim the island as its own. Just as had happened to Crete, Sicily, Cyprus and Rhodes over the past 300 years, since the armies of Islam first spilled forth out of Arabia to take over much of the Mediterranean Sea. As brigade after brigade of battle-hardened fighters came ashore unopposed that summer, quickly rounding up any bewildered and terrified Sardinians they came across as they fanned out into the central southern plain, it soon became clear that they were Muslim. Though the terrified locals could scarcely understand where exactly they had originated from, nor would most of them have had any idea even if it were explained. For them, it must have seemed like the end of the world, and for many, it was. Those unfortunate enough to be captured and come into close proximity of the leader of the fleet might have noticed that though a devout Muslim warrior lord, he himself was blue-eyed and fair-haired. In fact, he had been born a slave. His mother, just like tens of thousands of others, had been rounded up and taken from the wild riverlands of Eastern Europe during the mid-10th century. Perhaps, at first, aboard the longships of the fearsome Rus' warriors to the north of the Black Sea. Of course, he himself likely had little notion of what that life would have been. He, like thousands of other Sakaliba or Slavs, bought from the burgeoning slave trade, had spent his entire life in modern-day Spain, in the Caliphate of Al-Andalus. Then, for the higher echelons of society, undoubtedly one of the most advanced and cultured regions in the world, though for most, a brutal and unforgiving land. Like most of his male kinsmen, that boy had been drilled into service in the elite Caliphal army. And, fortunately for him, he would eventually gain access to those privileged higher echelons of society, gaining the patronage of the most powerful man in the peninsula, a caliph in all but name the vizier to the ineffective and useless caliph al-Hakim. His name was Ibn Ali Amir, better known to history as Al-Mansur. The caliph Hisham was descended from a man often regarded as one of the greatest rulers in history, Abd al-Rahman the supposed owner of hundreds of thousands of books who oversaw a golden age in Al-Andalus. 
Hisham had succeeded his father in 976, at the age of just 14. Immediately showing much more interest in the pursuits of pleasure rather than governing his realm. In his stead arose the celebrated religious scholar and warrior Ibn Ali Amir. Already a veteran of innumerable wars and battles by this time, including a significant amount of time spent amongst the Berbers of northern Africa. A religious zealot who regularly crucified those he considered to be heretics or apostates, Al-Mansur, known to the Christian inhabitants of Europe as Al-Manzor, looked down not just on Christians, but also on the native Muslim Andalusians, who he saw as weak and decadent, preferring instead to employ cadres of Berber sellswords, stoic veiled warriors from northern Africa a precursor to those Almoravids who would invade en masse at the end of the 11th century to counterbalance the increasingly powerful kings of northern Spain. Almansor saw something in the young Slavic slave soldier, eventually buying his freedom, converting him to Islam, paying for his education, raising him to his service and giving him the name Mujahid al-Siklabi, perhaps to reflect his devotion to Islam and to holy war. The aspect of rule which distinguished al-Mansur from his predecessors. Whereas Abd al-Rahman had for the most part sought diplomacy with his Christian subjects and neighbours, al-Mansur gave them nothing but the sword waging ruthless attack after attack against the northern Christian kingdoms. So brutal that many saw him as the very embodiment of the Antichrist, come to herald the end of the world in the year 1000. Though one of the greatest rulers of Al-Andalus, in fact it was these very attacks that inadvertently led to the breakup of the Caliphate after his death in 1002. Almost as soon as he died, faced with the reign of his equally vicious, yet not as capable son, Sanchuelo, vicious pogroms against Almansor's Berbers tore through the Caliphate in the 1000s and the 1010s, culminating in Sanchuelo's death in 1009, and the brutal sack of the capital of Cordoba in 1013 by the vengeful Berbers, after their number had in turn been massacred inside the walls. The city that had once been the envy of the world now lay scorched and ruined. Never again would it regain its former greatness. Though it had already been fragmenting prior to this point, the Caliphate now erupted into all-out civil war between rival factions. All over the realm, former administrators in provincial capitals declared their own independence, some attempting to legitimise themselves through a puppet caliph. Islamic Iberia would never be united again. The age of the Taifa states had begun. In the rapid succession of power grabs that followed Sanchuelo's death in 1009, 
Mujahid had come out pretty well, solidifying control over the western coast as well as the Balearic Islands. Prior to this, he may have served as the governor of Dania, under Al-Mansur's sons after 1002. Within a few years, just like many of the other states, he had set up his own rival puppet caliph, Al-Muati. His men were loyal too, some of them having served with him for decades, others under Al-Mansur before him. Yet, of course, still there were murmurings of dissent amongst the most devout. It was true that Mujahid had no Muslim blood in him. The Caliph Al-Rahman had been fair-haired and blue-eyed too, the result of European concubines over the centuries. Though he had darkened himself up whenever in public, Mujahid couldn't hide his lineage. Everyone knew it. But what he could do was reward his followers with new lands and new titles. And he knew just the place to go to do it. Sardinia. By 1011, Denia had been the first Taifa state to mint its own coins. Its power partly stemming from the fleet housed in its harbour. Its shipyards, according to the historian Mohammed al-Idrisi, was very good and very old. By 1015, faced with increasingly aggressive Christian kingdoms to the north and factionalism tearing through the Muslim kingdoms of the south, the violence would spill out far into the northern Mediterranean. In the previous decade and earlier, ships from Dania may have been launching periodical raids this far east, and perhaps even further, to the Ligurian and Tuscan coastlines to raid the relatively rich Italian city-states, maybe even leaving small enclaves behind on Mediterranean shores. But now, these attacks would come to a head. Mujahid wasn't an Arab, nor was he a Berber, nor did he have any Muslim blood in him. And now, without the support of his benefactor, he faced serious assaults on his legitimacy. Only one road lay open to him. Holy War. Aboard the remnants of the Caliphal fleet, Mujahid and his men soon made landfall on Sardinia. They were quick to round up as many of the locals as they could, they could use the labour, and to extract vital intel on the political situation on the island. All the signs were good, and it wasn't long before the first of many judges, Seleucio of Cagliari, was overcome, his lands seized. He didn't know what hit him, massively outgunned by this elite force from Al-Andalus. The 12th century Pisan chronicle, Liber Maelicinus, writes that within just a few weeks, Mujahid controlled all of the Sardinian coastal plain. Yet, he was about to get more than he bargained for. Likely seen as little more than pests and prey during the days of the unified caliphate, 
the Italian maritime cities of Pisa and Genoa were about to take centre stage. Hearing of the civil war in Al-Andalus, old scores would soon be settled. Conflict between Andalusia and the Italian city-states had been raging for decades by this time. And with other Islamic powers in the eastern Mediterranean for much longer. Perched in excellent geographic positions on the edge of the sea, Pisa and Genoa were already old by the turn of the millennium. Having played off innumerable powers over the preceding thousand years, becoming polities in their own right, growing ever more rich from trade over the years, often doing business with Muslim buyers. Now they would go on the offensive for the first time in a baptism of fire. The very beginnings of powerful maritime empires that would thrive for centuries to come. And a rare period of cooperation between these two rivals. Around the turn of the millennium, a Muslim enclave may have been already established on the rugged Sardinian coastline by Mujahid's predecessor, sitting not far from the holy city of Rome itself. We know that in 1004, Pope John XVIII urged his subjects to expel the Muslims from the island, a request perhaps linked to another military exploit recorded in the annals. For in that year, a fleet of pirates, though we don't know where they originated, had sailed up the river Arno to sack the city of Pisa itself. The Pisans seem to have had prior warning, as in the next year, they were able to launch a successful attack on a Muslim base off Reggio. A thorn in the side of Italian ambitions for centuries. Finally, in 1011, the Pisan annals record that a fleet from Spain came again to destroy the city. What other Iberian power had the resources to launch such an attack than Mujahid? Perhaps as a precursor to his invasion of Sardinia. The Pisans must have been ready for this attack, for they were far from crippled. Within months of his making landfall on Sardinia, a joint Pisan-Genoan fleet arrived to confront him. Although the Liber Melecaninus, written by a Pisan, completely excludes the Genoese, it talks of the Pisan noblemen like lions rushing their prey, taking turns to row the galleys. Such was their desire to fight the Saracens. Mujahid and his men, apparently unprepared for a prolonged battle, fled the island. The withdrawal must have been a massive blow for the Muslims. Sometime amidst the confusion, Mujahid's son, Ali Iqbal al-Dawala, was captured. He would only be ransomed back in 1032, 16 years later. Of course, Mujahid had only temporarily withdrawn. He would be back in the next year with a much larger army, reinforced by 1,000 cavalrymen from the Balearax. 
It seems that upon his arrival, the Italians also pulled out, leaving the Sardinians to their fate. Mujahid's vengeance would be swift. The Italians had not only defied him, but seized his son, and he would make the Sardinians suffer because of it. Perhaps making contact with garrisons that had remained on the island over the winter. According to the contemporary German chronicler Tietmar of Merseburg, a beachhead was also established at Luni on the Italian coast between Genoa and Pisa. The surrounding countryside pillaged without resistance, perhaps in an effort to convince the Italians to stay away from the island. He then set about constructing a vast fortress to act as his base of operations for the rest of the conquest. Similar daring invasions had been successfully carried out before. On Sicily, Cyprus, Malta and Crete, that last one also waged from Al-Andalus. Mujahid, every bit cut from the same cloth as his benefactor, Al-Mansur, that ruthless warlord who had overwhelmed army after army and town after town in the twilight years of the first millennium AD, was likely convinced that this attack would be no different. Al-Mansur had been a brutal and ruthless power player, using tales of his ferocity in order to keep his foes in line, and more often than not, seeing them simply surrender rather than suffer the horrific, tortuous death they assumed awaited them. Most notably, in the northwest of Spain lay the holy site of Santiago de Compostela, spiritual heartland of the kings of Leon. In August 997, a great Muslim army descended upon the shrine, burning and pillaging everything they found, tearing the cathedral itself down and dragging its bells back to Cordoba as trophies to be used as lamps in the Grand Mosque pulled all the way back to the capital by the human cargo of slaves captured. Of the prisoners, some were used as slave labour, others were taken down to the river Guadalquivir, publicly decapitated, their heads paraded through the marketplace before being hung from the main gates of the citadel. It's likely that Mujahid was present during this attack. Upon completion of his new stronghold in 1016, according to the Pisan chronicles, Mujahid took several of the prisoners present and had them bricked up alive inside the walls. The others he let go free to spread the rumours across the island. Meanwhile, in Rome, a new pope had recently been elected. Only in his thirties at the time, Benedict VIII has a reputation as a particularly warlike and aggressive man. Knowing that the Muslims would not stop at Sardinia, he had to act. The presence of a Sardinian cardinal at his court, Ilario Chao, may have spurred him to action even more leading to his active involvement in a campaign to the island. Benedict even granted privileges to those who took part in the upcoming expedition, granting it a vermilion banner 
and leading some writers to call the expedition an early crusade. Tiatmar of Merseburg called those who took part in the campaign protectors of Christ, going on to relate a particular incident where Mujahid sent a sack of chestnuts to the Pope in order to illustrate the number of soldiers he would unleash on Christendom if the Pope didn't leave Sardinia to him. In response, Tietmar writes that Benedict sent back a sack of millet to represent the Christian soldiers who would meet him. Tietmar even says that the Pope raised and sent a fleet of his own, probably meaning that he encouraged the maritime republics to send fleets on his behalf. Though some of those involved may well have been hired mercenaries, this campaign was unprecedented in history. By the time this proto-crusading force arrived on Sardinia in May 1016, murmurings of dissent were already being heard in Mujahid's camp. It seems that tales of Sardinian riches had been grossly exaggerated, and Mujahid's men had very little in terms of plunder to show for their troubles. Faced with the prospect of yet more hard-fought campaigns across the mountainous terrain of the interior, the army may have already been on the verge of mutiny by the time the Italians arrived. And when they did, their mere presence was enough to shatter the Muslim resolve. Knowing when he was beaten, Mujahid again pulled out, this time for good. During the ensuing retreat, according to the Pisan sources, a storm battered the Andalusian galleys. This is a common trope for Christian victories at this time, and as almost no sources remain to tell Mujahid's side of the story, we simply can't be sure whether this was the case. Though, according to the Italian account, written a century later, they picked off the remaining Muslim ships one by one, including, in a particularly curious account, Mujahid's mother, a Christian captured as a slave earlier in her life, apparently choosing to willingly remain behind with her people, rather than return to Andalusia. Mujahid soon made it back to Dania with the remnants of his fleet, which in reality may have still been significant as he was able to quickly regain control. There he found that his puppet caliph, Al-Muati, had attempted to seize power for himself. He was exiled to Africa, where he would spend the rest of his days. An especially curious figure Mujahid spent the rest of his long reign peacefully engaged in the arts and literature, even writing books of poetry, now lost, and ushering in a flourishing period of culture in his court, a tradition that was carried on by his son and heir, Ali, when he was finally successfully ransomed back by 1032. Back in Sardinia, meanwhile, if the islanders had thought the actions of the mainlanders had been entirely for their own salvation, they were sorely mistaken. 
Of course, the city-states proceeded to conquer the island for themselves, before fighting over the spoils. The Pisans were the eventual victors in the war, securing papal privileges, installing their own churchmen on the island, writing the Genoans out of history, and using Sardinia as a stepping stone to wage war against other Islamic enclaves on the Italian sea. Notably destroying the pirate base of Bonn in 1034. Celebrating their victories with frescoes all over the palaces in the centre of the city. It would be many decades yet before the crusading era would properly begin. But when it did, both Genoa and Pisa would be there to play a part, ushering in a period of maritime supremacy over their corners of the Mediterranean. <laughs>